Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're once again putting art in the frame. Mary Rizal, global head of the UBS Art Collection and a good friend of this programme, has been to meet an artist behind two works that have recently been acquired for the UBS Collection. The artist's name is Jeffrey Gibson, and Mary headed off to Jeffrey's studio in Hudson, New York, to meet him and to discuss his life and work and the two pieces, 2019's You Have Set My Soul on Fire and 2020's Don't You Want Me Like I Want You, that perfectly capture a unique visual vocabulary closely linked to his Cherokee and Choctaw heritage. Born in Colorado, Gibson grew up and studied between the United States, Germany, Korea and England, truly a citizen of the world. This exposure to a range of cultures has undoubtedly had a major impact on his outlook and his artistic practice. Mary Rizal began by asking Geoffrey about, well, about exactly that, whether and indeed how this diversity and breadth of experience has shaped him, shaped his worldview and, of course, shaped his art. Hugely. You know, now that I have children, thinking about exposing them to other cultures and different experiences is something that's really important to me because I can see clearly how much it's influenced me and I think for the better. I think it's so important to be taken out of your comfort zone and being a foreigner. You go into a new environment and especially as a child, it's your senses that you navigate with. So it's your, you know, for me, visual, huge. What I hear, I remember walking through neighborhoods and listening, and I think it's really important that I didn't understand what was being said. Looking at people, communicating with people with your eyes, fumbling to say something, and then learning. And then there's this period where you shift over into a participant. You know, you're, you're an observer, and then you can a humble tell. humble observer, right? Yeah, and then you can tell when you shift over into a participant, and I think it's something I think about a lot in making work when I approach something new. The artworks are really the evidence of me exploring. That's really how I look at it. That's how I figure out a subject. It also, I think, makes you more compassionate, right, when you can understand the other. Throughout this life journey, was there a moment when you knew that you were going to be an artist, or was it something that was always innate within you, or did you have some sort of a light bulb moment or a teacher that put you on this path? I think I drew naturally as a child, and my parents encouraged that. My father and my mother both really encouraged going to museums. Music was a big part of what we did. My father would always return home with artist posters that I would put on my walls. Really? So really early I knew about people like Warhol and Degas and Matisse. I remember them being on my walls. And then as I got older, it was something that I wanted to do because it was something that I was good at and I was celebrated for very young. But it wasn't until really, I would say college, that I began to know even what it really meant to pursue being an artist. Did your parents support your going to art school? I think they probably did support it, but I didn't know how to tell them that's what I wanted to do. So I initially started at the University of Maryland and I studied anthropology, archaeology, and I had a third major of painting. And I did horrible, and I got kicked out after the first year. I got a lovely letter asking me not to return. And I had to go home and tell my father that I was not able to return to college. He was, of course, upset, 
And I begged him to let me go to a community college just to prove to him that I wasn't like a total loser. Interesting. And I went to Prince George's County Community College in Maryland. And there was a woman, Barbara Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, she was my painting professor there. I suddenly found my place. I was in the studios 24 hours a day as much as I could be. And she helped me put together my portfolio. And she's the one who advised that I go to the Art Institute of Chicago. Wow, amazing. And so I went there and had my own experience at, at SAIC. Your work's been described as modernist abstraction meets uh, Native American culture. What artistic influences did you have along the way? Were there artists that really spoke to you or excited you? I think like a lot of people of my generation, I mean, certainly seeing like Basquiat and Warhol and Kenny Scharf and this New York scene, yeah. Interview Magazine, I would give a lot of credit to kind okay, of, it was like my portal to imagining what I wanted to be doing, mm -hmm. you know, when, when I could do that. And then in terms of actual influences, there's these artists I think who were not supposed to like or were taught not to like in school, you know, That's so for me, true. definitely Warhol, you know, was yeah. like kind of written off as like not real art, right. you know, too in many ways it was too Sold commercial. Out. And I never could like break that habit, like I was always, yeah really amazed with how he chose subjects, yeah. you know, I think was something that was really important to me. Matisse, mm -hmm. I would, whenever I could see a Matisse show, mm -hmm. I would go. And I remember the National Gallery did a paper cut show. Mm -hmm. And you know, because I, I had them- I remember that one. Yeah, yep. because I had them on my wall, amazing. I always thought they were like this big. And I had no idea when I walked when I turned the corner, that it was this massive, like, installation, you know? And so I still, to this day, think it's like, okay, so when I get really old, I can be in a wheelchair and, like, push pieces of paper around and, like, have a team yeah. of people and help me put together work. So Matisse, for sure. Cy Twombly, another artist who I think we're not supposed to like. Right. To this day, I still look at my Cy Twombly books, and I'm like, I just can't figure out what it is that's so addictive about looking at these. I was just thinking that myself. It's that kind of, like, scratchy mark making that yeah. seems it, kind of internal right yeah. like an internal force yeah. that somehow you feel and I think people so free, think that that's right? like I guess if you're not paying attention to the art world for instance or to painting that might look like an easy thing but I know like and I tell my students this sometimes it's like put yourself alone in a room and try to think about what's important to do you're probably not going to land on this Right. You know, right. like on a canvas that you've spent hours priming and stretching and, you know, and we're taught so much to value image yeah. that I think abstraction is a real challenge and to think about how to take abstraction seriously. I always felt that I didn't want to use painting or drawing always in support of creating an image. Mm -hmm. There was always something that it's enough, like the color is enough, right. like the, the spill is enough, mm -hmm. the pour is enough. And I guess a lot of what's informed, in particular the paintings, but really everything has been like taking that kind of impulse to trying to appreciate something that can be just sort of like a support role thing. And to, to have that express very specific content. It's like, how do you get all of that to work together? With the most recent paintings in particular, using you know, pores and staining and spills, I realize that those thoughts have been in my head for a really long time, so it's taken me years to just get it out onto the canvas. To me, those pores and spills look like an emotional layer. Yeah. Right, yeah. you're just letting it go. And I think that's one of the things, like thinking about Cy Twombly, one of the things that always amazes me about artists is 
sticking with it, right? When you don't have recognition necessarily. Right. We all know artists that have been doing this for decades and don't get the recognition and yet they persevere. Mm -hmm. And I read an article or an interview that where you had a moment where mm -hmm. you questioned whether to continue being yeah, an a artist. Couple. <laughs> a, couple. <laughs> a couple. So, and that was kind of a pivotal, what was it, like 2011, yeah. around yeah. then. So, yeah, tell us about that, if you would, that yeah. what happened and where uh, did well, you go from there? I was probably a classic story of New York. I think it was probably working anywhere between seven to nine freelance jobs. I had a loft in Williamsburg. We were paying my rent. I would make work from, you know, 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., and I just started resenting the whole experience. The other part about being an artist is I think we think that artists are sold the idea that when we get a gallery, it resolves everything. Or when you have a solo show, it resolves everything. That's interesting, yeah. Or when you have a full page ad, it resolves everything. Yeah. And I was just like always trying to figure out how do we get this to happen. And when the work would go out for exhibition and it would come back, it just felt like the biggest failure. It's like you sent out your best and nobody wanted it and it's coming back. Oh God, mm. it's so personal, right? It's so it's personal, It's like your children yeah. Putting, yeah. putting your inner self out there. Yeah, and the content that I'm known for today, I was still trying to do then in pure abstraction. So it was so subjective that I think people couldn't really access what it was I was trying to do. They couldn't um, read it, right? It wasn't yeah. obvious enough. Yeah. If we look at some of that work today, you'll definitely see, especially a lot of it coming back now, but it's also with the addition of things that are much more recognizable, and it's about that context between subject and the context that I'm putting it in. So now within a more informed view of your work and kind of what you represent, yeah. it's easier to read For sure. those paintings. I just was always questioning it, you know, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And when you live in New York City, you get to meet artists of different generations. Yeah. Some of them were at the time in their, you know, 50s and 60s, yeah. and still waiting for this same checklist right. that I was. Right. And I was looking at all the things that they had sacrificed yeah. to, to continue. And I just finally realized, I was like, I don't think this is for me. But I knew I still wanted to be an artist, so I just didn't know. So I think leaving New York City, going to San Francisco, going to France, coming up here, doing residencies, and that starting to step. Yeah. find that I need a situation where the pressure is off mm -hmm. and I can focus on the challenge of how do I pull all this together into a painting or into a sculpture. And what impact did that have on your work? Time, you know, I think also just the kind of frenetic energy of my experience living in New York City and feeling that you were supposed to be at every opening and you were supposed to know every artist and it was like a ego hit. Yeah, there was it's like the ego has a separate life, right? Yeah, and then exhaustion, yeah. you know. <laughs> I also promised myself that I wasn't going to end up a crazy artist. Like sanity was really important to me and I was like, I want to have a full life that included having a relationship, having a family. And as much as I love being an artist, and it definitely influences every part of me, I need to be able to contain it, mm -hmm. you know, one or two days a week mm -hmm. that I can step away from it and go do other things, even on behalf of the work. Right. 
just so I can go out and experience the world and come back. Right, right, and bring it back in. Yeah. One of the things you're known for is your incorporation of native materials Mm -hmm. into your work. Beads, deer hide, all sorts of references that are very deeply rooted in craft, really. So one of the things that I think is so beautiful is kind of this tension between craft, between the handmade and painting art. Mm So could you talk a little bit about bringing that craft and those traditions into your work and how that's changed your work? I'm gonna go back to these purely abstract paintings. This is around 2007, eight. And the way that I would apply the paint, like the lines that I was using, I was thinking about weaving, you know? So it was sort of like, this one would go under and over and under and over, and this one comes down and here's where there's a snag. And so that was what was informing that the mark That was in making. your mind, right? Yeah. Okay. Same thing with basketry. There were times when I would use dots that I was thinking about beads. So that was always there. But like I said, people were reading it relative to, I think, Western and American abstraction, where a lot of that abstraction didn't want to claim content. Mm-hmm. You know, it wanted to point. be comfortable yeah. with formal decision making. Right. So. It was out of one of these moments of frustration that I thought, you know what, I'm gonna stop the referencing. Like, thinking about it as like, okay, if this dot is referencing a bead, and then there's beads over here, like, this distance between these two I need to, like, lessen. And eventually, the bead or the hide, it allowed me to focus on formalism because I wasn't having to convince anyone of a starting point or of a lens to look at. So in a sense, you were spelling it out for For the audience. And it kind of clicked, right? The way that I was looking at things like beadwork and hide in a way that I was concerned that it would pigeonhole me, what I realized was the audience that I was trying to speak to oftentimes isn't thinking about these things as intently as I am. So they have a kind of freshness and flexibility that I wasn't assuming initially. Also at the same time, I've always paid attention to objects and artworks made by Native people. I also had that information that I wasn't trying to replicate what was happening there. There was definitely something not unrelated, but different that I was trying to do. I can think about the first punching bag, for instance. Like, I thought it sounded crazy. I was like, you're going to beat a punching bag. And I was like, that's insane. And then that took about, the first one took about a year and a half to make. And I thought it was crazy. I was working with the dealer at the time who saw it halfway made and just got it all in one, one two minute kind of looking at the bag, you know? How did you even come to that idea of using a punching bag? Back to one of these moments of frustration. <laughs> you I, were literally um, punching it back. Yeah. So Callan Lord, um, who is an LGBTQ plus health service in New York City, because I didn't have health insurance, mm-hmm. was where we would go for, for health yeah. healthcare. And they offered counseling services. And so I, I was angry. And, and so they said, well, why don't you just go talk to a counselor? And so I went and I um, talked to them. And I remember f- going into that first session feeling so confident that I didn't need this. I was like, I'm super capable. Like, this is ridiculous. This is a waste of my time. And within 45 minutes, like, all this stuff just came out so quickly about my resentment, about this pursuit of being an artist. Yeah. And over time, this counselor basically helped me pinpoint that there was a disconnect between my mind and what I perceived 
and what I'll refer to as my body and what was, how it was actually operating in the world. And so he said, uh, why don't you work with a physical trainer and just work towards really? trying to unify really? these things. Yeah, so I worked with a physical trainer and it was a woman who um, had me boxing and she would hold the punching bag and she would ask me to name, like, who, who are you angry at? And I realized with things like racism, homophobia, classism, these are things that there's not a singular person who's responsible. It's like a societal condition without a face. Right. So I remember like that coupled with also talking to a traditional native artists who were making things for their communities. And you know, they were making things like earrings and jewelry and clothing pieces and quilts. And I realized they were making those things for their communities, but they were also establishing an independence mm -hmm. from mass-produced, consumer-based living. Mm -hmm. And I thought there was something really powerful about that. So there was something when I was punching this bag that these beaded pieces that I collect called Iroquois Whimsies, which are kind of these over-beaded objects, mm -hmm. it all just came together in this punching bag, that the punching bag is this kind of very masculine, you know, thing in the way that most people perceive it. It usually marks someone deciding to like make a change you know, and a lot of it is about power and shifting power relationships. And it all just kind of came together one day. And I was like, I just want to dress this bag. When was that? What year do you know? Um, probably started 2011. And then the first one was completed in probably 2012 and was shown in 2013 at the Museum of Art and Design. Because I think it was so new in many ways, I think people weren't sure, but we showed it and I remember somebody bought it like that weekend. Wow. And it was amazing how many people got in touch with me to share with me that they could, it resonated with them in a way that my paintings never had. That was kind of the beginning of those. And I, you know, we don't make nearly as many as we used to. Right now we make maybe two or three a year. Mm -hmm. My vision was always to have all of them in one room because the first one is urgent. It's like a necessity that right. it needed to be made. The ones we make now, they're perfect. They have a different presence than the very first one. Those first ones are really special. This makes me think of representation, right? Because so much of the conversation today is about representation, yeah. whether that be in politics or business or the film industry and also in art. In a TED Talk from, I think, was it 2012? Yeah. It was a wonderful TED Talk that you did and you were lamenting the lack of representation of Native American creators mm -hmm. within art history. I think obviously you are you know, instrumental in making a shift here. Have you seen a change uh, since 2012? Are For things sure. moving in the right direction? I would say that they are. I think, well, there's a number of things. One, there's just simply more happening with indigenous artists. Yeah. I think one of the biggest lacking components was an indigenous voice when it comes to critical writing and thinking. And, you know, if I think back 15 years ago, I don't think people felt confident or maybe knew how to determine what makes one work better than the others. It was kind of like an articulated subject. I remember I would get calls where it's like, well, we thought it would be great to put your work next to some baskets in our collection. And then it took me a few years to kind of say, well, what does my work have to do with these baskets? Why is this the interesting curatorial choice? So I've been able to have a lot of those conversations. There's also a younger generation, I think, right now that is wanting to be a part of the art world. 
you know, where there has always been a native art world and a non-native art world. And oftentimes they have not really crossed over. And so for me, that was something that I was really determined to do. And I think that means that I had to take responsibility for working with writers, you know, to tell them when what they were writing was not serving me. Oh, that's interesting. And when I had to kind of walk people through how I wanted people to look at my work and why I thought what I was doing was different or important. You know, even now, some of it is about putting some of that down. The content is so inherent in my work, it's difficult to take it out, and I don't want to take it out, but I feel like wanting to open up, so for instance, to the more painterliness in the paintings. And it still makes me nervous. I'm like, what am, what am I thinking? Like, why do you want to like pour paint on top of these right, things? You know? Right, right. Let yourself so, go in that way. Yeah. I read this beautiful story, um, and correct me if I got it wrong, but it, it was when you were going to go to graduate school and you couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. um, the Choctaw Nation paid yeah. for you to go to school. That's true. And your initial approach to them was when you finished undergrad, I think, and you wanted to to teach. Yeah. But when you actually you, after you finished graduate school, you were told we don't need you to come teach. We need yeah. you out in the world. You have more value, you know, as a representative of this nation out in the world. I just mm -hmm. thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it's totally wild. Totally. You know, wild. and it's true, right? Yeah. Because you you have created this platform and this space. And I think also that, you know, you are a teacher. You know, it sounds like the teacher in you, mm -hmm. right? To actually step in and make corrections. This is how, you know, to approach this with respect to writing or whatever. Mm -hmm. How does the teaching, what does that mean to you? And are you, you know, is it a two-way street? Do you learn from your students? And how committed? Because it's a, it's a commitment, right? It is a commitment. It shifted over the years. I've taught for probably around 20 years at this point. And there was a time when I thought, you know, my job was to like tap into everyone's creative self and help them bring that out. And now I'm interested in students who this is what they want to do, like they want to be an artist. What that means is a number of different things, but I feel like I'm happy to offer my experience as earnestly as I can. And I don't try to tell them that the art world, it's not fair. And I think and if this hard. is something that you want to do, you have to be ready to put in the work and you have to be ready to get over a lot of things that are going to make you uncomfortable and set some boundaries for yourself. But the main thing is make work. If anyone's ever complaining, I always ask them the first thing is like, well, are you making work? And I know every curator who I've ever worked with, they've been watching me for a few years before we're really in conversation. Mm. And it's interesting because I didn't know that. With the MacArthur, I had no idea that anyone was paying attention. Right. That's I had no amazing. idea. And when they called me, my cell phone went out of power. I was on a country road and I was like, oh my God. I was like, get me to a plug. I have to. And they, they said, did you really not know we were watching you? And I said, no. If somebody had asked me, I would have said, oh, it's something I'd like in like 10 years. You know, like, I'm, I'm working, sure, and I'd like for that to happen. I had no idea. And who is the we that's watching, right? We do, it's anonymous, right? Usually you have no idea. You have amazing. no idea. Collectors, curators, directors, young people who want to work here, like, you have no idea. One thing we didn't talk about, which is important, is your use of text in your artworks. You have such great titles. Two of the works that we have, one is You Set My Soul on Fire, mm -hmm. 
from 2019, and the other is Don't You Want Me Like I Want You mm -hmm. from 2020. And I love your text is also pictorial in its own right, right, yeah. and, and semi-abstract. And also it references music lyrics yeah. very often. Yeah. Music and text, and it's kind of wide open, these titles, but they're also familiar because mm -hmm. we know these songs often. It draws you in, but it's very free. So yeah. what is your approach with text and, and the importance of music in terms of your Well, I'll start with practice. music because it's the easier one to answer. But, you know, music has been a big part of my life since probably teenage years, high school. I graduated high school in 1990. So those years leading up to that, my friends and I would go to a nightclub in Washington, D.C. called Trax. Mm -hmm. And Trax was a huge gay and lesbian club, 30,000 square feet Where in the was Navy that? Yard. What part of town? In the Navy Yard. Oh, in the Navy yeah, Yard. Yeah, by the water. Oh, okay. And so it was not a, it was a dangerous area. Yeah. And, At night, uh, especially. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember going there and, you know, of course, we would be there dancing. There was also volleyball courts and they'd serve hot dogs and french fries and we were getting drunk. And there was always these older gay men who were probably in their, like, 50s or 60s. And I remember they would all kind of, like, hang out around the bar. And it didn't occur to me till I was older that the music we were listening to was kind of collecting us all in both a celebratory place for the young people and also a place of community and mourning for the older people who were losing and had lost many of their friends and loved ones to AIDS. Oh, right. So, and my generation huh. of kind of, not so much coming of age, but maybe like maturing post mm. the height of the AIDS mm. epidemic, you know, I always felt some degree of guilt, you know, but I would go back and listen to those songs and I realized they were speaking to both of us. And they were also speaking to spirituality, community, love, and somehow they were we were kind of contained collectively within that. And and it and it really defined these spaces. So it wasn't just tracks, but there were clubs like this all over the country. Right. And I realized a lot of people will remember that time feeling very optimistic about the future, like racism, homophobia, classism, these were all going to go away. We were going to have this utopic future. That didn't happen, but yeah. <laughs> and the vision was set. So I would say that's where music really started. When I moved to Chicago, then Chicago House was like what I did every weekend. Right. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I didn't realize that that was really like a, a musical genre by DJs and musicians of color, you know, and it, mainly like black and Latino, like it, it just didn't occur to me at the time. So then when I went to London, I remember I was told that I was black in London and they were like, this is, this is London and here you're either black or white and you are black. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, I'm so glad that this person told me that because yeah. it kind of positioned me clear. in a way that I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. It continued with like house and soul and swing, jungle. So everything's always been kind of guided by these kind of musical genres and what people wore and, you know. So then even before I started using text in the work, my titles were always oftentimes derived from, from text in poems or books, music. I guess it was in 2013, 2012, sometime around then, I started taking it seriously. And it had to do with this, what you were saying before, about just sort of like make it as obvious as possible. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm just going to put out, it right literally. on top of it. I'm literally <laughs> yeah. just going to put it right on top of it. And the first punching bag that uses beaded text, it just has the word believe, believe on it. And it was really, literally me speaking to myself. It was just like, Jeff, believe, believe. Aside from 
exploring writing a bit. What is ahead for you? What are you working on? What shows are coming up? Yeah. And yeah, is there any other paths that you're exploring? This time of quarantining um, has been really altering for me in many ways. I think the project at Socrates Sculpture Park. That was amazing. Thank you. And working with other indigenous artists was really a huge thing because this notion of what collaboration means is something that I always try to approach thoughtfully, like per project. And with Socrates, you know, the invitation of people who I respect for what they already do and just the collaboration is really, I, I contributed the structure and yeah, the kind of framework. Can you describe that for us? For the, yeah. The collaboration, because you've collaborated also in, in your TED talk, there was incredible yeah. video with uh, collaborating with a skateboarder yeah. and, and different artists, craftspeople, yeah. and combining your work with theirs in a sense to create something new and I thought And that's where it started profound. from. That's where it started from. Well, Socrates is a large park. It used to be a, a dump. It was yeah, a dump landfill, site. right? It was a landfill. landfill space. That's the nice word, a yeah. landfill. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a park, but um, it's a very large open space, and I feel like you need something large to, like, occupy it. If you're and this was monumental. How, yeah. how big? It's like a ziggurat. It's a shape. ziggurat structure. Yeah. The footprint is 44 feet by 44 feet by 21 feet tall. Was that made here? No, no. Okay. It was actually constructed at the park. Okay. And it's covered with posters and texts, and the texts read, "Powerful because we're different. Respect indigenous land. In numbers too big to ignore, and the future is present." And these are all all sets of words that I've used in the past. The structure is based off of a Mississippian mound culture from Cahokia, and this is where all sorts of life would intersect. So political, social, burial, meetings. And is this historical, these mounds? Yeah, yeah. This is going back to, I believe, 1200. Yeah. And one of the things that I think, when I discovered them, I was in my 20s working at the Field Museum in the anthropology department. Mm -hmm. And this is where the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians would have emerged from, from the Mississippian culture. I was surprised to learn that, but then to realize that in archaeological terms, to recognize the Mississippian culture as a fully realized civilization pre-contact changes the way we think about history. Mm -hmm. That upon European contact, there were no fully realized civilizations here. Right. So this is one of those architectural structures, which basically is proof that there were irrigation systems, there was plumbing, there was... Like um, the pyramids, so sophisticated yeah. beyond... And nature. all of those same questions. It's like, how were these built? There's also aerial earthworks that you can only see from the air. So that was is on my mind for a long time. So when Jess Wilcox, the curator at Socrates, invited me, because of the space, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Then she told me that their theme for the season was monuments. Mm. And then I really? thought, well, the ziggurat is very much about, I think, a history that many people are unaware of, and I want to use it to highlight different histories that people are unaware of, of indigenous and black and brown histories. So I invited Raven Chacon, Emily Johnson, and Laura Ortman to come and perform. These are three artists who I have so much respect for, and they did, and it, I just really stepped back. I, was, I played whatever role they needed. So facilitator, performer, fundraiser, you know, <laughs> whatever we needed to do. And now it's going to the De Cordova Museum and we're working That's with in Boston. In Boston. Yeah. And we're working with Luzine Hill, Dana Claxton, who's Luzine's from Atlanta, Georgia. Dana Claxton is from Vancouver. And Eric Paul Reed, who's from Gallup, New Mexico. So new performances, new posters, and additional programming more than we had 
at um, Socrates. I love that collaborative spirit and energy, and it dignifies. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like what is craft and art, and it elevates it all, and yeah. it creates something that's new and different. I think also, you know, it's interesting with digital media because I feel like I am making this work for other native audiences that are kind of spread out because we can send video yeah. digitally so easily, we can show it. I just think it's important that this community of artists who I'm working with, you know, we really have a lot of power to kind of support ourselves in many ways. That's something that I just keep thinking about. Maybe even the way that I went to grad school, that was significant for me. I mean, that's a huge deal, but that kind of, I don't know, just ability to, to operate as if there are no boundaries. I like what's happening, say, on Instagram, where yeah. artists can be, you know, self-actualize mm -hmm. and put themselves out there without, you know, always waiting for the gallery to come and save right. them and make something right. out of them. And I, I, I love that energy, and I love to see these artists taking things into their own hands, yeah. right, and yeah. using media to share their work. Part of the, you know, you were asking me before, do I feel more pressure now at this stage of my career? And it's one of the things, what you were just saying, I feel like it's, it's my job to keep my practice going. Yeah. You know, it's like my job to develop the paintings further. It's my job to develop the text further. And hopefully I've got a lot of years to do this still. But I, I think that's what, it's another thing that I always tell artists. I'm just like, it's not anyone else's job to make your work for you or to tell you what to make or to tell you what's interesting. It's like, that's on you. Like, you've got to go do it. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank yeah, you thank so you. much for having us here, Jeffrey. It's wonderful to be in this space, and especially during this time to open up your studio to us. Yeah, so. of course. I'm super happy to. Thank you. Thank you. And that's Jeffrey Gibson and Mary Rizal bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. To learn more about UBS's passion for art and its own extraordinary collection under Mary Rizal's direction, just head to UBS.com and search UBS Art Collection. In the meantime, you can listen again and find out more about this programme at monocle.com or via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24.